I am Kelly Brown Douglas, and you are listening to Just Conversations, where we explore the racialized inequities intrinsic to our nation and our collective responsibility to create a more just future. Later in this episode, I will speak with a leader who we connected with through the Poor People's Campaign, who is working for fair wages and fair working conditions for the people of Baltimore. But first, I am speaking with the Reverend R.J. Powell from the East Tennessee Diocese, who serves as chaplain at the Tyson House at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, and who serves as Tennessee clergy deputy here at the convention. I am speaking also in this conversation with the Reverend Charles Graves IV, who is campus missioner for the Houston Canterbury House and a member of the executive council of our church. Both of my guests are members of the church's LGBTQ caucus. Today, we discuss the resolutions on the floor of the convention that bring LGP and women's justice to the forefront of the church, as well as discuss their thoughts on what it means for the convention to be in Baltimore City. I want to jump right in. Uh, in asking you about some of the resolutions that are before us on the floor and uh, were calendared to come, two of which were calendared, I believe, to come up for vote on yesterday. Given the times in which we now find ourselves, particularly in the aftermath of the Dobbs versus Johnson decision in which uh, Roe v. Wade was overturned, and the implications of that decision by the Supreme Court that go beyond simply uh, abortion rights, but they're about reproductive rights and implications not only for women uh, and women's uh, body justice, uh, but implications for uh, the LGBTQ community, particularly trans persons, and the implications beyond the Dobbs decision for what is to come in the courts, given the way in which this decision was made. And we've already been given a warning of what will follow. And so this is the time when our church can lead the way on the public square and give voice in a wider moral imaginary of what justice looks like. So I just think this is such an important time for resolutions such as the ones that have been before us. Uh, the resolution uh, asking for a staff position in the national church as it re relates to LGBTQ persons at plus persons and women as well as uh, the establishment of an LGBTQ plus task force. I'll start with you, uh, Father Powell. Can you speak to the importance of those resolutions and the status of those resolutions? It's an incredible time uh, for the church to be speaking. And the church has been speaking. And we, we, we have uh, come a long ro road, and especially the last decade, in um, establishing rights for, uh, for our LGBT uh, siblings in the church and how that speaks to the greater society uh, around us. Um, 
And it's, it's such resolutions that are before us that we continue to have a public voice and say, we are working on this within ourselves, because if we don't work on it within ourselves, we have no right to say anything about anybody else. And so I think it, it saying we are establishing a full-time position on this, on the national church and the presiding bishop's office to work, uh, especially regarding women in our church um, and LGBTQ community in our church to have a, a, a focused person who is going to help our church to articulate what are those issues for us that we're that we are uh, uh, facing today that we continue to face, and you know we think that you know women in ministry we're, we're at forty years and with right. ordained women this year and um, in our church but there's a we have so much there's so much more to go, um, and with the uh, recent Supreme Court decision. It shows that you know we are able to go backwards. Uh, we those rights and the the ground that we have gained, we can lose that ground if we're not careful and we're not actively pursuing justice in our church and in our world. So this is that's that's the importance of our work um, in very real and tangible ways here at the convention. Yeah, and Father Graves, what strikes me uh, in listening to. Uh, Father Powell, and in light of these resolutions, is the intentionality of naming uh, these communities, right? Because one of the things that we've recognized through the Dobbs decision that gender and race even are not particular are not mentioned in the Constitution, which allows one then to suggest that those are rights not guaranteed by the constitution and indeed that's what's happened. So the, the, could you speak to the importance of the intentionality? And I must also say that I was surprised and, and ought not have been that, wow, we don't have <laughs> those positions in the church. We don't have that task force established in the church. So I'm surprised that it's taken us so long to get there. I, I agree with you, absolutely. So I live in the state of Texas Father Powell lives in the state of Tennessee, two states that have both already, as we are speaking, functionally banned abortion access, uh, and two states where, to be very frank, uh, my marriage and Father Powell's both rest on a 5-4 Supreme Court decision by a Supreme Court that no longer exists. Um, I, I said to someone recently, um, you know, just as a new pharaoh came to power who knew not Joseph, right, a new Supreme Court has come to power who knew not Oberfeld. Right, Oberfeld v. Hodges. That's that's the world in which we live in, essentially, uh, and and so our church's um, activism, our witness in states like ours, and in all across this country, and in the 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 other country, the many countries are, uh, represented by the Episcopal Church uh, that also don't have uh, equal marriage access and, and abortion access, uh, and are are so critical. And so we we need someone, a consistent voice on the staff of the Episcopal Church to help all of us to, to speak up and speak out. Uh, and as you mentioned, gender and sexuality are so deeply tied together. That's right. um, we had a uh, an officer for women's ministry uh, some triennia ago, and that position was uh, was eliminated. And since that position uh, has been eliminated, we we see now both in the public square and within our within our own church, how important it is to be able to have that consistent uh, that consistent voice. And so we're we're pushing very hard for this. We're 
we're glad that it has, uh, I am so thankful for uh, our friend and uh, LGBTQ caucus uh, co-leader, um, the Reverend Dr. Cameron Partridge, who, yeah. who wrote uh, resolution DO93, um, and that, that resolution is kind of reincarnated uh, in the form of AO63, if my uh, numbers and letters are correct. Uh, and so we're, it's, it's very important that we get this, that we get this through now even more than ever uh, in the time in which we, we live. Yeah, so let me ask you, thank you for that. You're, again, <laughs> so right in this. I am going to, as my younger sister uh, often says, I am uh, just going to claim the victory and recognize that our church that is committed to the Jesus movement and the beloved community, that it's going to be a fait accompli, that our church will pass these resolutions. So let's, let's see if it's going to live into being church. So when it does, I'm going to claim that victory because I don't see how it could do any other given uh, who we claim to be. How should the church, you think, show up then in places like Texas, in places like Tennessee, and in places like Florida, and simply on the public square in general to show a uh, expand our understanding of justice and to assure these rights for, well, all of God's children. Well, I might, I might I'll, I'll, I'll time in there. Um, you know, I think that, you, you know, Christianity and Christians have been given a kind of a bad rap uh, by a large demographic of our sisters and brothers and our brothers in Christ. Uh, um, I'm not going to point fingers or name names, but you know, we have a unique witness and version of the Jesus story that I think speaks to our time. Right. You know, uh, Bishop Curry in his address this morning named uh, several statistics of how just how bad of a reputation we have as a church in, in the public's eye. And but on the other hand, he mentioned that 80 percent all across the board of people who say Jesus is someone that deserves to be listened to um, and who they will they want to hear more of. So Jesus is our message. Jesus needs to remain at the, the our focus. And I think as Episcopalians in uh, 2022, we have a version of the story that is not like uh, versions of hatred and discrimination that we have so often heard being proclaimed in the name of our Lord. But we have a unique witness, and um, especially in places like Texas, Tennessee, here, here, here in Maryland, all across the United States, all across uh, the 13 nations that the Episcopal Church exists in, and more plus uh, Europe, I think they count Europe as one, um, that, you know, we have a version of Jesus, uh, a version of love, a, a person of love and th that we in that we incarnate and that we live not just with resolutions, but out in the real world right. and how that how how the resolutions actually meet um, the actual lives of people that we are in relationship with. And so I think that it's so important to to remember and to share. It is about Jesus. It is about that good news. And that's, I think, what's unique. Um, the, the unique thing that we bring to the table as Episcopalians. 
I appreciate hearing you say, Father Powell, that it's beyond resolutions because we can, you know, we also have a reputation for coming to these conventions and we love to make resolutions. And there are over 400 resolutions uh, before this convention. And then no one knows what becomes of the resolution. and, And we don't show up in the world as even those resolutions may suggest. So I like this notion that the resolutions really are resolved to act, not simply within uh, the church, but beyond into the world as church. So which leads me, excuse me, to ask you this, uh, and I'll, Father Graves, I'll uh, ask you this in relation to that. There's a resolution uh, on the floor regarding Lambeth Conference. Mm -hmm. And we know, of course, that that comes up in a couple of weeks after this convention where the Anglican communion of bishops gather. Uh, And it's always a controversial conference, but this even more so because it, uh, they have uh, restricted uh, those who can participate. That is the spouses of uh, uh, same gendered uh, marriages cannot come to Lambeth while others can. There's a resolution stating our dismay okay, we're dismayed, <laughs> but should we be going? What, what can it speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I first want to thank uh, my very good friend, the Reverend Philip Sheeran of uh, Western Massachusetts for writing that resolution and bringing it to us, bring it to us through the LGBTQ caucus mm-hmm. uh, and, and getting it out there. Um, and I, I want to say, on one hand, we, we kind of have to do two things at once. On one hand, we have to recognize the progress that we've made. Of course, um, Gene Robinson was not uh, even allowed to attend Lambeth in 2008. So now we're at least mm-hmm. uh, at a point where the, uh, I believe we have now five uh, openly LGBTQ bishops in the Episcopal Church and if, uh, three or four others uh, in other parts of the Anglican Communion. Um, and now one more bishop elect uh, are uh, able to attend and we're thankful for that. But we recognize that at the same time, that's not enough. If we are, uh, if the spouses of all of the uh, heterosexual bishops uh, are able to attend Lambeth, then the spouses of our same-sex uh, married bishops should be allowed to attend also. That's the, that's that is the the basic fairness that we um, that we incarnate as uh, as this in this church uh, in this uh, global Anglican communion, and and we have to um, we have to be fair in that sense. And so so you know we need to continue to speak up to raise that voice as as the Episcopal Church. Um, and, and continue to, to be, um, you know, the leading voice for LGBTQ equality across this communion. You know, uh, in um, October, I authored a resolution in executive council speaking up on behalf of the council and, and as a major voice in this church uh, against um, homophobia and homophobic uh, laws in Ghana that, that had been endorsed mm-hmm. by the bishops of Ghana. Exactly right. so, we, so we've got we've to continue to, to be, um, to, to speak up, to, to uh, be an active voice because we've got to speak up for the many, many, many people across this communion uh, who whose voices are denied. Many LGBTQ folks whose voices are denied, who have no voice uh, because of the active homophobia in their in their uh, provinces of the communion. Thanks for that. I, I tell you, uh, Father Grace, I, I I must say that I continue in some ways to be astounded by the way in which. Uh, the communion Lambeth discriminates against 
uh, same-sex marriages, and yet says little about those who keep silent or perhaps are complicit in uh, the uh, oppression and actually uh, death and uh, the very uh, life-threatening laws uh, in their very diocese uh, against LGBTQ uh, plus persons. And uh, so I appreciate hearing how you say we must continue to give witness to that in lifting up. but I see in so many ways the, the hypocrisy uh, of our communion uh, in letting certain things go and not naming them as sinful, uh, yet at least implying uh, something about the sacredness of uh, certain loving relationships. Huh. I, There's something though, I think that um, that is the LGBT community brings to the table is our experience with with that in our own lived experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember talking with a Mike Bishop about whether he was going to Lambeth or not and mm-hmm. bringing my concerns like, well, are you going to show up? Mm-hmm. Um, what will that say? And so we actually came into a kind of a heart to heart and some agreement that, you know, showing up is so important, even mm-hmm. if you agree showing up and meeting people face to face it changes mm. so many things in a world where where social media is king yeah. and and vitriol and hatred are so easy to to spew at someone across the screen having face to face and meeting heart to heart it really changes the game and so i think mm. my prayer is that at lambeth those folks who get to meet these our lgbt bishops get to see that they're human beings. They get to see the human face, the human heart and the love of Jesus and the image of God that is in them as well. And I think that um, that's the witness. That's 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 our experience as LGBT people. Um, so often we come out, we come out of the closet and, oh, it changes my experience. It changes so many people's. I know someone who is, it's not just a, an issue without a face anymore. It's a real human being, flesh and blood in front of us. And I think that really changes, it changes hearts. So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful that some will be able to do that and hope that God will open hearts. Thank you for that. And I, I, I agree. I think that's so important and, uh, and, and very important that the church lives into being church by showing up with uh, yeah. our LGBTQ uh siblings and showing up boldly <laughs> uh and forcefully uh in that regard let me i promise to get you out of here so i've got to uh i'll get you out of here on this question it's going to shift some gears i'm going to use your showing up father powell we're a convention now that is in the city of baltimore mm-hmm not unlike many other uh, urban centers in our nation, a city uh, riddled with what I call the crucifying realities of poverty that disproportionately fall upon people who look like me, people in the African-American community. Mm -hmm. Just yesterday, which would be Thursday uh, in Baltimore, not too far from uh, where this convention is being held, as many of you probably know, as you two probably know, there was a homicide uh, yeah. in that one. Right outside, right outside this window. 
Actually. Right out. That's right. Uh, yeah. uh, my son lives right down the street from there uh, by uh, an incident with a squeegee boy. As my son and I were saying, no, we didn't want anyone to get killed and don't condone that homicide. But that incident is symptomatic of what's going on in Baltimore. No one grows up and says, I can't wait to become a squeegee boy. <laughs> it's symptomatic of the poverty uh, that is Baltimore and the death uh, fostering conditions in which people live. How should, right down, as you say, right out the window from where you are sitting, how should, how must the church show up and make itself known as church in Baltimore right now? Mm -hmm. mm. Charles, all, all, Father, Father Graves. That's fine. No, I would love to talk about that. So I'm, first of all, I'm a son of Baltimore. I grew up son of St. James, uh, actually yes. born in DC, but raised uh, right here in, in this city. It's good to be, to be home. Father RJ and I, so we've built an organization together, but we met for the first time in person yesterday, just outside mm. of the Sheraton. And just as uh, Father RJ and I locked eyes, we both looked just you know, a few meters away, uh, a few yards away, uh, at where traffic had been blocked off because of that shooting, just minutes, but literally minutes before, um, and uh, and so you know that that's of course very fresh in my mind and in all of our uh, all of our minds. Um, I'm a, I'll be again real honest. I'm a 32 year old black man from Baltimore City. You know, so so many of these things when these when these things happen as frequently as they do, you know, I think you know. Uh, you know, uh, you know, woe, yay, but for, for, you know, the grace of God in so many ways, um, you know, could it have just as well been me as it, as, as that squeegee boy, um, you know, a block away. And, and we have to, we have to be very honest about that. We have to be very honest that these are, these are real human beings, children of God, our siblings, and not only because they could be any of our sons and daughters, uh, but because of the, you know, systemic injustices that we've talked about, we don't witness that because so often it's so easy for so many of us to think, oh, that's something that happens in Baltimore, in Detroit, in Chicago. I don't live in one of those places. So, you know, and we think it doesn't, we think it doesn't apply to us. But if we believe in Jesus, if, if we believe, as you mentioned, a crucified savior who, who bore the brunt of violence and, and, and death, then, then we know that it's, that it's our bodies as much as it is those um, who, to whom it occurs day after day. And so if we, if we talk about it from that way, from the base of our, of our faith, from the base of, from the base of our soul, then, then, we'll under, then, then we'll understand that we have to, you know, offer our spaces as, as um, you know, a space for, for community and for safety, that we have to offer um, everything that we have, you know, our, our, our treasure, our, our abilities, whatever it is, and our voices to speak up in, in so many different ways. We're a church with so many gifts to be able to give, and we we have to uh, truly live into that and know that we do it because of Jesus Christ. And I, I think if we do that and we consistently speak up, we will create so many more um, opportunities, and and we'll we'll create uh, a better world and a better church in our cities and and everywhere else as well. Father Charles Graves mm -hmm. and Father R. J. Powell, this brief but very rich conversation, I think has been inspiring and challenging. Speak up, show up, 
And remember that we are a part of a people who follow Jesus. And so show up in that way in the world. Thank you both for your time, for your witness, for your ministry, and for the voice that I know will be yours at that general convention to help our church become, well, church. Thank Amen. you so much. Thank, Thank you. God bless you. It's a pleasure, honor. For today's second interview, I spoke with Todd Cherkis from United Workers, an organization fighting for fair development, universality, equity, participation, transparency, and accountability in Baltimore. He has worked on many high-profile unionization battles in Baltimore City. He and I talked about his work and how he is reframing the debate around development projects to center the conversation on workers' rights, wages, and fair conditions. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. I want to jump right in here. You do work uh, with, amongst other things, uh, the United Workers, and they have a very strong presence uh, in Baltimore. Can you tell us what something about the United Workers? So the United Workers was founded in 2002 at a homeless shelter that was a, an abandoned firehouse that was converted into a shelter. Um, and what we started with was looking at why are people living in the shelter and are homeless? Like what is the, at the roots of that? And what we learned at that time back in 2002, that many of the people that were staying in the shelter were working, but they were working at jobs that just weren't paying enough to meet, make, make ends meet. And many of them were working as, as temporary workers or day laborers where they were hired and fired each day. They didn't know their schedule from one week to the next and were often paid well below the minimum wage. Um, and the largest employer was the Camden Yards baseball stadium. So uh, yes. as folks are gathering down at the Inner Harbor in that same general kind of sports and entertainment area is the Camden Yards baseball stadium as well as the Raven Stadium. And for a long time, those stadiums were cleaned um, every night for um, with workers that were made uh, making three bucks an hour under the table and not being able to, and many of which were homeless. And so we organized those workers and fought for a living wage for many years, um, up in from 2004 to 2007. The, the, those years we organized at the stadium and won a living wage <coughs> after workers threatened to go on a hunger strike in front of the stadium. And then the mayor and the governor and, and the powers that be um, agreed to our demand for a living wage. And then the next year we were able to unionize that stadium workforce. Um, but what we saw in that campaign was this, this kind of unaccountable public subsidies that were going into these types of developments. So the stadium was a, was owned by the state of Maryland, still is. It's not owned by the Orioles. The Orioles pay a nominal rent fee and then the state maintains it and cleans it and all those things. And what we learned was that that is kind of the a standard operating procedures and a lot of public money goes into major corporations and corporate developments that seem to <clears throat> not have any standards for how communities would be impacted or actually benefit from those things. So at the time when Kindors was built, it's now lauded as one of the historic and famous stadiums in the country. But at the time, people didn't really want it. And um, politicians were able to get it over the hump by promising, particularly in black communities, jobs. 
That's uh, right. These are largely underserved communities to begin with historically, um, as well as redlined neighborhoods. So they've been disinvested in in many ways. Um, and so on the backs of that promise, a stadium gets built or two stadiums get built with the Raven Stadium. And yet those jobs that were promised turn out to be jobs you can't live on, much less pay rent and raise a family on for too much. So um, we saw that, you know, so we saw the stadium and then we moved our work to the Inner Harbor um, for a long period of time as well. And what we learned from that was very similar to the stadium in terms of lots of public money going into a project meant to solve a problem. At the time, the Inner Harbor was heralded as a, um, a, a panacea to the loss of industrial jobs. So as the Sparrows Point Steel Plant and other um, manufacturing left Baltimore, um, at one point that plant um, employed over 30,000 workers, it's gone now, it doesn't exist. Um, and so to replace that was this belief that we could um, raise up a tourism zone called the Inner Harbor, and that would create en enough jobs to um, benefit and keep the city thriving. And what we saw when we went down to the Inner Harbor and talked to workers was actually people were paid um, oftentimes less than minimum wage, um, made to work off the clock, endured sexual harassment, endured um, unhealthy working conditions, and it was seasonal work. So the minute the summer ended, their hours got cut to the point where they were often um, you know, asked to leave and go on unemployment or find something else to do. And so many people at the harbor had more than one job because they couldn't really live on the job that they had in the harbor. So we saw there, and this is a development project that as people come back to Baltimore for the conference, the most people in the city view the inner harbor as kind of a dead zone at this point. Yeah. Much of the businesses have left. The owner, the original owners of the inner harbor, two different historic pavilions are long gone. Um, they've been replaced by other owners who then were replaced by Wall Street investors. Um, so it's changed hands many times and it's just not viewed very favorably in the city anymore. Um, that said, workers still work down there for, uh, for you know, they're not unionized jobs. They don't have the same, they have any kind of protections. And like I said, at the end of the season, you know, once school begins again in September, those jobs almost all but disappear. So they're not really going to sustain a city. Um, and again, that the way the Inner Harbor was built and was continued to be invested in was largely through public investment and, and, and including money that was from the, the Housing and Urban Development Department of the federal government. That money was meant for poor and, and working class and black neighborhoods in Baltimore and was was really um, diverted to this other project. Um, I'm going to skip several decades to the rebellion um, that, that took place um, in the wake of Freddie Gray being murdered by the police in Baltimore. And the city's solution on hand, there was two different solutions. Most of the, the city dialogue was on trying to eliminate the neighborhood that's, that Freddie Gray came up in, called Santan Winchester, and blaming the problem of police abuse, in essence, on the neighborhood that's and right. on the people themselves, this distorted moral narrative that where we end up blaming the people most impacted for these systemic problems. So there's a lot of push to demolish the neighborhood. And in fact, um, one section of public housing was in, in fact cleared um, by the city. Um, and then the other thing that they did was they supported, the city just supported a massive public subsidy, probably the, I think it was the, the, the 
highest level of subsidy ever in the city's history to the Under Armour Corporation to build a, a campus and you know sports complex of some kind in South Baltimore. Um, so that's where they chose to really, they chose to demolish a part of a, a black and poor neighborhood and rebuild somewhere else. And we're, you know, workers in the middle of this struggling with how do we put forward a different vision for development? And so we came up with a campaign to demand um, the creation of an affordable housing trust fund that would earmark millions of uh, annually, $20 million a year to um, develop housing for the very poor. So when we say affordable housing, we don't mean oftentimes cities say affordable housing, they mean housing for people making 80,000 and up. Exactly. Right. This is for people um, very much below the median in income, well below. So between 30 and 50% area median income. And so that was the campaign that we did and voters overwhelmingly approved that measure to create the trust fund by over 80% um, back in 2016. And then we we went on from there to create, to create a campaign and win a campaign to fund the trust fund. Yeah, I thank you so much for that history. I remember very much, I'm from uh, Maryland in that area and <laughs> taught for uh, years uh, in Baltimore and during, of course, the time of uh, Freddie Gray's murder. And so I remember very much, one, first the promise, quote unquote, mm -hmm of development and how that was going to help the city of Baltimore and the excitement from the powers to be surrounding that National Harbor and the two stadiums. Uh, and remember uh, the uh, immoral narrative surrounding what happened uh, in Freddie Gray's uh, neighborhood. And so what we see, and first of all, we know when conventions come in like the church they're going to be around that Baltimore, I mean, that inner right. harbor area, right? And not understand in so many respects how that is an area and that of development that exploits, has exploited the city, the poor, and, and the people. And we're talking about working poor. So two things, questions I want to ask you. I know you ran a campaign to declare that area a human rights zone. And uh, I would like to hear more uh, about that. And, you know, also it, the contrast between something like the Inner Harbor, which now, as you're right, isn't as attractive uh, anymore, but something like uh, the Inner Harbor and investment in these kind of things. And I remember the controversy around that Under Armour uh, uh, campus, the, the contrast of investing in these things while at the same time divesting, divesting in the communities where the black people of Baltimore live. I have never seen uh, such neighborhoods and other cities that are so, where you can have a row of five or 10 houses and then one that is occupied. And there just seems to be utter divestment uh, mm -hmm. in the communities of the poor in Baltimore, which, as we know, are disproportionately uh, black. So I've asked two questions in one. The human rights zone and how can we perhaps declare these communities human rights zones that people yeah. have right uh, to housing? No, I love that. It's good. It's a good contrast. And so at the Inner Harbor, we organized um, low wage workers there for a number of years. And our, our biggest, well, we kind of had two 
successes. One that would be kind of viewed as a success in a standard way, which was ESPN Zone, owned by Disney, right. got rid of all, like closed, and they didn't tell their workers really. So workers got notice, found out they were losing their jobs on Facebook and other social media platforms when the news broke. And these are workers that had been mostly at the ESPN Zone for years. Um, we're, we're, you know, it's fair to say we're pretty heartbroken at the news. It, some of the, some of which became homeless. Some had to move to other cities to survive. Um, we took on the task of organizing those workers who were, became unemployed, um, and with the help of legal aid and then the help of a law firm, sued Disney um, for violating a federal statute called the Warren Act, W-A-R-N Act, because they didn't give their workers notice. Um, and so workers were awarded um, back wages and compensation for that. It took several years to, to win that case. It was not um, easy going up against Disney and they delayed it as long as they could. So that was in some ways a, like a success in that we were able to hold Disney accountable for something. But we, at the same time, you know, workers still lost their jobs, ESPN zone still closed and the harbor kept on moving along. Um, what we also learned, which in some ways for us was a, was an important lesson for us, which was that the, the Inner Harbor and development in general essentially rules Baltimore. There's this narrative that this that that one party, the Republicans, they like trickle down economics and giving money to their wealthy. And then there's this other narrative: the Democrats are opposed to that. Well, Democrats run these cities, major cities, and they run them with that in mind, this framework around, we got to give subsidies and, and, and large, our largest to the wealthy developers to, to, to bring back our city in some way. So they practice the same trickle down approach that nationally they critique, but locally they, 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 that's what they've practiced. So we, we learned that we were just stymied at every turn with the politics in our city around this. So when we even attempted to, to um, put forward a, a resolution in the city council to have a full accounting of the money that was spent on the inner harbor and the results like you say this is going to do these things for working people in the city let's take a look at over the last several decades how that's been going before we just dump another hundred million into the inner harbor or the or what or another waterfront development there's many right. of them at this point and the city council right exactly what do you say? The Fells Point and all that they're doing there, all right? East, there's a Exelon, the energy company um, has their own campus now, and then you've got Under Armour as well. So there's a lot of different waterfront properties at this point, but the city council refused to take up our, our resolution. And at another turn, when we, we had the same debate about holding these accountable for another waterfront development, we wanted human rights standards to be put in place. And the city council leadership refused and even said to, uh, to, to me personally, we can't get past the human rights words on this page. Hmm. And just even the words human rights in a document was a non-starter. So that's the level of a lack of transparency and accountability at the city level. So that taught us a lot about our, our power and stake in the city and kind of where we can't approach this. This is a symptom of a much bigger problem. And to your point about the disinvestment, so when we went, so as we're marching to the inner harbor, we're hearing from from people in their community about the disinvestment. So at that time, rec centers were on the 
were, were about to be shut. Half the rec centers were being proposed to be closed. People were worried about crime increasing. Those rec centers, many of which were closed, we were able to then fight to keep a rec center and a fire station open in West Baltimore, literally blocks away from where Freddie Gray was murdered in Town, we're fighting to keep a, a, a fire station open. That's the level of survival that we're talking about. So we were able to, to keep a rec center and a fire station open, but it also opened the door to this conversation you're talking about, about, okay, so you have the Inner Harbor and all this money going one way. What about our neighborhoods and how we invest in those neighborhoods? That's why we have been fighting for the, the Affordable Housing Trust Fund and getting resources into that trust fund and getting that money back into the hands of communities to develop permanently affordable housing um, as well as um, urban agricultural projects. We have a major community garden called the Hope Garden in West Baltimore and the city refuses to recognize it. Like they won't even, like there's so much vacant land that you we have a whole block that we've taken and you can see from the, it literally looks like out of a science fiction movie or something. And the city refuses to, to acknowledge the sweat and toil that people that live in that neighborhood are putting into this garden. Um, they won't let us even adopt it. So we're on our, we have our own struggle there to, to get to have that being recognized, but it, it, there's this indifference that the city has towards people that don't, that don't have means. And if, you know, we had millions of dollars, they would, you know, give us plenty of an ear, but since we don't have means, they continue to ignore us because they're just looking to make money. Well, one, the, first of all, I'm glad you brought up uh, Hope Garden because one of the other issues, of course, in Baltimore uh, are food deserts uh, 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 in, in, in Baltimore. And it's not just Baltimore, other urban areas, poor uh, areas which have been divested uh, have food deserts. But no means, we're getting near our time. So I want to turn, the church does have means, right? Uh, uh, so what, you know, the Episcopal Church is getting ready to come in there, there are churches there. How can and must churches be present? What can they do and must do to be present beyond, our church likes to pass resolutions, beyond passing mm -hmm. resolutions, uh, to really make a difference? What must they leave behind, Todd, when yeah. they... Uh, leave Baltimore after their convention to make a difference other than being a part of the monies that go toward the failed uh, investment down at the Inner Harbor? So I'm going to speak to, to two things. One is I think that the Poor People's Campaign um, is a really important vehicle, very strategic vehicle for lifting up um, these issues in a big way. And what we saw with the pandemic in particular, but also way before that, we're not going to solve the problems of Baltimore by just being in Baltimore. These issues of, of racism and poverty are so systemic and national that we need to be uniting across churches and other, and other denominations and other walks of life um, to build a, a national movement. So getting hooked up with your state poor people's campaign is very important. I know that um, we've connected with Episcopal churches in Maryland as part of that, that effort very important. Well, I'll give you one example. So during the pandemic and to this day, we have these, we have what we call projects of survival, where we are trying to meet people's immediate need and also have a, have an organizing conversation. It's actually based on the Black Panther Party's own survival projects from back in the 60s, free breakfast program, medical clinics, 
and the like. And so we, United Workers, distributed food all over Baltimore and then did projects all around the state as well um, to meet people's immediate needs around eviction defense, around food, around PPE, cleaning supplies, um, and, you know, other other issues. But so there's a way that the churches can connect around immediate needs, but not just do it in a charity way, but also right. do it in a way to build solidarity with people that are on the front lines of poverty and are directly impacted. The other thing, so one part of that, that navigating I want to end with is, so we're at a church in Cumberland, Maryland, which is one of the poorest towns in Maryland. And the church there wanted to get involved with the Poor People's Campaign. They ran a food pantry. So now we talk to people when they're coming in to, to get food about their conditions, what are they going through, what needs they might have. And then we're inviting them to uh, a once a month Bible study that is a book we're reading called um, We Cry Justice that was written yes. by and edited by by leaders in the Poor People's Campaign, including co-chair Dr. Reverend Liz Theo Harris. And the chapters are very short, but they they are written by by lay, lay leaders as well as, as ministers um, to give insight into one, the, the very day-to-day struggles, as well as how in the Bible um, the poor are lifted up and in, in right. given a, a place of privilege in many respects in the Bible. So, you know, from, um, so we have a study once a month where we bring, where people from the pantry are invited in, other leaders in the, in the community are invited in, and we do the study together, and that builds our understanding of the conditions that we're going up against and allows us to be more informed of how we would approach, continue to do the organizing. So right now we're, we're planning a big, we're going to be doing some community canvases um, to, again, identify immediate needs to work on together collectively, not just us providing a charity model, um, but also for us to then be building relationships with people that are impacted to identify issues to continue to work on. So last summer when we did this, we ended up doing a lot of eviction defense because the moratorium was not being enforced in a lot of our communities. So that's where we put a lot of our time in last year. Todd, thank you so much, first of all, for the work that you're doing in Baltimore and across uh, the country with United Workers and the Poor People's Campaign. And what I hear most importantly, that our church as it makes itself known in Baltimore, needs to make itself known and not only in Baltimore, but in uh, other cities in partnership with the people who are on the front lines uh, in solidarity with uh, the poor uh, and the uh, disenfranchised in, in, in the various cities. And so uh, I hope that that's a message that our church will hear from you and thank you again for your time and for your work. Thank you. Thanks for having me.